Welcome to Fraggle Shrug, the podcast where we read Atlas Shrug, the classic libertarian mystery novel from 1957 by Ayn Rand, and watch episode of Fraggle Rock, a Jim Henson Muppet TV show from the 80s. And why do we do this, you ask? Well, of course, to discover all the deep hidden connections between the two that we are absolutely convinced are there. My name is Henrik, and today, as always, Siegfried is joining me as my co-host. Oh, hi. I didn't see you there. Hello. Oh, hi. Welcome. Come inside for some hot action from the Randyverse and some almost hotter action from the Fraggleverse. We've made it to episode five. Yeah. More than 10% into the book. And this chapter was a long one. Oh, yeah. 35 pages in this book and uh, what, two hours in the audiobook? Two hours in the audiobook. The, by far the longest chapter so far. Oh, yeah. So how, how far are we into the book uh, in terms of when we have to watch the movie? Well, we are halfway past part one. So uh, in the same time as we have gone, we should be able to take a little break and watch a nice little movie. Oh, nice. But let's just get into it, right? Let, let's get into the meat of it. There's a lot to unpack this time around. Oh, yeah. And I've, I'm so thankful to have this podcast while I'm reading this book, because if I was just doing this on my own, I think I'd, I'd lose my mind. There's so much to process. and I, uh, <laughs> I both lose my mind and question my life decisions of actually reading this book. Uh, I think I would have stopped it long before. <laughs> yeah, and I think I would have plowed right through and just lost my mind somewhere <laughs> around chapter five or six or one for that matter. Uh, as far as I can see, uh, Ayn Rand has already lost her mind. That happened about chapter two. and it Oh, it, long before she started this book, I think. She's... Uh, just, uh, well, at least from chapter four and on, she's clearly writing this with the one hand on the typewriter and, well, the other one is getting busy. Yes, <laughs> that's, a, that's one way to describe it, but... Um, Suffice it to say, uh, the moistness has not <laughs> receded. Even though we had what we thought would be one of the most moist episodes last time this this is yeah we called that too soon <laughs> we called that way too soon but the the moist metal has been exchanged for another one this time this time it is copper instead of magic metal yes copper and problematic behavior but let's get into that later yeah let's uh, first uh, just present what's happening here I would like to uh, tell you something about Atlas Shrugged, and I would like to start out by summarizing the entire chapter in one quote. Take it away. From Daphne's mother, about Daphne and her uh, lovey-dovey boy Francisco de Anconia. It is not a romance. It is an international industrial cartel of some kind. I think that summarizes it. Also summarizes the entire book, basically. Yeah, yeah. It's... Uh, <laughs> She could have just written that. <laughs> Why didn't she just write that? Oh, well. This chapter is a deep dive into these two uh, young people's love lives, Dagny and this Francisco de Anconia. And I'm just going to call him Frisco like Dagny does because the other name is just too long. Yeah. So Frisco, he's the, he's the son of a... He's the heir to a copper empire, I guess. He's, uh, he's the guy, we've heard of him before. He's bought some useless cover mines in Mexico that has been taken over by the state. And uh, Jim, Dagny's brother, and a whole lot of other people that we're supposed to hate have lost millions and millions of dollars on this. So, 
We have heard about him before, but we haven't met him. And in this 35-page chapter, it goes around 30 pages before we really meet him. <laughs> All the beginning of this chapter is just lead-in and more uh, more details about Dagny's childhood, because, of course, we needed those. Like, half of this book already is, like, her backstory. Yeah. Yeah. We. I, I doubt anything has happened in her life that we haven't heard about at this point. And And is her backstory really that interesting? It could have been summarized in about 10 pages, I would say. Yeah, she's basically just looking at blueprints and damning the evils of charity. And having a magical work week of, I don't know, 72 million hours. I don't know. Yeah, a fraggle she is not. Oh, no. I think we have disproven that by now. But, uh, yeah. Frisco is the Azurkaba Empire. He used to visit the Tagat kids every summer. Uh, and he's just like a he's like a superman he's uh, amazing he can do anything without trying and he's an arrogant prick about it he has to quote donald trump one of the greatest minds of all time uh so of course he's uh, we're supposed to like him yeah as a 12 year old he's already taking industry jobs and building elevators out of ropes and pulleys to get up on rock faces by using differential equations he has invented on his own. Basically, uh, imagine Khan from Star Trek. But at least he's humble about it, right? Yeah, very humble. Uh, yeah, and he's a big fan of Nat Taggart to foreshadow some things. Founder of Taggart Transcontinental, alleged murderer and guy who tried to pawn his wife off in exchange for a loan. Oh yeah, that wonderful character. Yeah, he's uh, an idol of young Frisco, who comes from his own line of uh, dubious characters who uh, made a history of mining copper. But at least they 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 increased the uh, efficiency. Or they increase the family values of 10% of each generation we get to hear. Yeah, very efficient uh, in a way that leans a smidge too far towards eugenics in the description. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was as if the centuries had sifted the family's qualities through a fine mesh, had discarded the irrelevant, the inconsequential, the weak, and had let nothing through except pure talent. Has anyone ever gotten hurt by a bit of eugenics? Like, oh, it's, no. it's all in good spirit. He's the most brilliant phenomenon of a brilliant family line. Francisco, it was said, was to be the climax of the Adanconius. And that is the name of the chapter, the climax of the Dianconius. And uh, we made fun of that earlier because it sounded dirty, but boy, she wasn't kidding. It is dirty. Because Dagny... And Frisco uh, start out early with sort of a, a capitalistic kind of flirting. Mm -hmm. Some flirting through the means of just working your fingers to the bone and uh, unceasingly seeking out wealth. And that gradually turns into uh, pure, true love. They basically have a battle all through their childhood who has the most stringent work ethic, it seems. Yeah, and he's always ahead of her. He's working in heavy industry at 12, as I mentioned. Yeah, and we're supposed, again, we're supposed to like him for this, that he smuggles his way into working child labor at 12. Yeah, it's strange. Well, uh, as they get older, they fall in love and uh, actually uh, consummate their relationship in a carnal manner, so to speak. So to speak, indeed. And after that, they just uh, they fuck like rabbits. 
and as she goes off into the world, uh, they see each other less and less. And, um, well, she stops seeing him at all and he becomes sort of a weird playboy. Yeah, much to Daphne's, like, annoyance. Like, she can't get why why he changes his character traits because he's not this humble yet very psych- sociopathic character anymore. She's very surprised. Now he's throwing big lavish parties where all the women have to take their clothes off as some ice is melting. So in other words, a feminist icon. Clearly. Yeah. So back to present time at the end of the chapter. She goes to see Frisco to learn why he uh, he bought those useless cover mines. Uh, and it turns out uh, it was all some sort of scam or practical joke with the goal of making everybody lose a lot of money. And he compares himself to Emperor Nero burning down the city of Rome. Are we supposed to actually get something coherent out of this? Because I I started, like, he started with this whole narrative of him being Nero and how he unravels everything in the fabric of everything. But I didn't really get it in the end. I was like, you're not really making a coherent point here. Well, we have 900 pages left to go. I'm sure he's getting around to it sometime, sooner or later. Maybe this book will make a point at some point. Who knows? Probably accidentally. It has to by, uh, by just virtue of number of pages. Exactly. I, I call in the, the monkeys and typewriters rule of sooner or later. Maybe if we just like take one chapter and just shuffle all the words, it will be coherent. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure you can make something coherent out of just rearranging all this. If you just take everything that Aaron Boyle and Jim Taggart says, you can sort of just condense that into something meaningful. Yeah. But that's basically what happens. Uh, and along the way, it, it gets uh, problematic. Yes. But let's get into that a bit later. Should, should we just quickly just recap the Fraggle episode and then get on with the meat of it? Yeah. Let's switch over. And I would like to actually uh, also start this out with a summary and one quote. Uh-huh. Everybody has to choose. Yes. That's actually a line in there, and that is everything. That, that, is, that is a really great line, and surprisingly, it's not the episode title. No. The episode title is the wonderful The 30-Minute Work Week. Which is also very good. They're quite saying. Um, it starts out with uh, Doc and apparently his neighbor have some sort of disagreement. Yeah, and I still uh, insist that the neighbor is the Gork King. Yes, let's agree on that. So he has a disagreement uh, with Shimmelfinny. Um, we found out once again the dog is basically just a hoarder hoarding random ass stuff. Uh, and he's been out shopping again, of course. Like the poor fucking dog has to like clean his mess all the time. Yeah, poor Sprocket. But he's he's in this episode once again he presents something to the dog that he quite can't have. So he gives him the choice between two donuts. Yes. Um. That apparently don't have holes. So what the fuck is up with these fucking donuts? This is the biggest topic. This is what we should really be talking about. One of those donuts. Yes. What is going on? So it's it's a, it's some sort of sweet bread at least. But but he, he waits so long with making a decision that he actually has to make another choice between two types of soup instead. Um, so it's like again, poor poor Sprocket really can't have his dinner. That's the that's the whole. Because he's indecisive, he can't have his donuts, he can't have his dinner. And at the end, he has to go to bed without food because he couldn't make a choice. Yes. And I would just like to point out that 
This is the second episode in a row that has ended with Sprocket not getting his food. Exactly. I think we're about... In a normal world, we would be about calling animal abuse at this point. Yeah. And it's a weird tendency that the that the human level stories just aren't resolving. Uh, is that making a point about the interminable suffering of of the existence? Uh, is, mm. is it just lazy writing? Maybe, maybe we'll get to that. Uh, at some point, I think we might get to that. Or we might have a like really rich character arc at some point. But uh, who knows? Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed indeed. But what's going on in the Fraggle world? What is going on? The whole episode basically revolves around the fact that Wimbley has to pick a job. Which is apparently something you have to have in the Fraggle universe. We never knew this before. For some reason, every Fraggle has to go to work now. <laughs> yes, uh, because it's very important in the Fraggle universe that they, they take work very seriously. They take work so serious that you have to do it for 30 minutes a week. What? And sometimes you will even have to put in one or maybe two or three minutes of overtime. That is not acceptable. So that is terrible. All joking aside, I think this is uh, this is a good model for how society should be with a universal basic income. And <laughs> the Fraggle Society is the dream society. Yeah, I wouldn't mind working if it was only 30 minutes. And I will just note here that this is the first episode of the Fraggle Rock that I haven't seen as a kid. Oh, So we're, we're getting out in uh, unknown territory for me. Unknown territory for you here. And I blame the entire reason that I don't have a good work ethic on... Not having seen this episode as a kid. <laughs> yeah. I think you would have an even worse work. I think. <laughs> that might be true. <laughs> so, um, so we actually also get to learn what the Fraggles are actually doing in the universe. So, for example, Red, we have learned before that she's a swimmer. Hmm. But apparently it's her job to make the water clean by swimming a lot in it. Uh, which confirms that Red does not understand hygiene at all. And that... Duck is drinking very filthy water. <laughs> He's drinking fragile juice at this yeah. point. So Moogie suggests to Wimpley that he gets a job um, collecting uh, radishes in the Gork Garden because um, he basically goes around Wimpley asking all the other fraggles, what are you doing? Can I have your job? Mm. He tries to do that, but he finds that too terrifying. Then he tries to ask Boober whether he can get his job, which is doing laundry, but he finds that too boring, which is basically Boober's favorite part of the job. Oh, yeah. So at that point, the episode takes a very, very dark turn, uh, where Gobo basically insists on getting very tough with Wimpley. Tough love. And he insists that he must be leaving if he can't pick it out a job. Even going to the fact of saying... It would be really easy for him to leave because he only have, what, one pair of trousers? He has one thing, and then yes. when says, I will pack my thing. Yes. It gets, like, incredibly sad. Yeah. Um, so, of course, what do you do in the Fraggle universe when everything gets sad? Trash heap! Ask the trash heap for help. And, as always, the trash heap is wonderfully non-helpful and very helpful at the same time. Yeah. So she suggests different kinds of job for poor Wembley. We go through, like, him maybe being a prime minister. Yeah. A classy job. Um, what else do we go through of jobs? Like shoe salesman and uh, farmer, I think. So prime minister is a natural uh, next step there. 
Exactly. I love I love their course of what the great thing about being a farmer is that you get free eggs. <laughs> if only farmers knew that in Denmark, like everyone wants to be farmers, right? At that point. Oh yeah, that's a, that's a good bonus. But um, he gets drawn to being a fireman. Yeah. Even though that is quite a dangerous job too, but I don't think Wembley really gets that. He just in, he's just in love with the outfit. Yeah, and apparently trash ship has always. Also wanted to be a fireman. A lot of people want to be firemen. We later find out that actually in the fight, because we get back and there's a whole inauguration ritual. Yeah. Where Wembley has to answer three questions in order to become a fireman. And of course he succeeds. Um, we get to learn that both the fire heap and Wembley believes that... Trash heap, not trash fire heap. <laughs> but... They both think it, it's part of the job description to be able to create fire. I don't really think they understand the position of fireman. I don't think any fraggle does. No. I don't think they even know what fire is. We've never seen fire there. I don't think fire canonically exists in this universe. I think the fireman's hat and the ladders they're in love with. Yeah. Also, so we get we get them singing a whole song and then it uh, it basically ends with... We clip back to Doc that explains the whole fireman joke in a in a like very clear way. But what we also learn is that if you see like the distribution of jobs here in the Fraggle universe, mm. it's it's not very clever. So you have one person doing all the laundry. You have one person cleaning out all the water. You have one person picking out all the food, and then you basically have twenty Fraggles that are firemen. Well, that's an important job. Uh, if 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 no one knows how to start a fire, um, that that basically it. Yeah, well, yeah, that's basically it. But we do get a little uh, postcard from uh, Uncle Traveling Matt. Oh yeah, who's out on a roller coaster ride this time around? Yeah, and as Red says, I love fiction because she's cold. Yes, it gets uh, very meta at that point because does traveling Matt even exist at this point? Yeah, is he the only fraggle that exists? Maybe. Anyway, he's he's riding a roller coaster that he has uh, mistaken for the subway. He thinks he's using public transportation has very uh, disturbed that how uh, intense it is. <laughs> uh, and and they, they make this great thing. I don't know whether you noticed, but this is like a production thing that. They actually, in order for this to work, he is in the front of an actual roller coaster. Oh, yeah. It's very good. Uh, very well made. With, with this guy sitting next to him, uh, the guy, all, he's also like uh, commandeering the fraggle, like the puppet. Yeah. So did you notice how he did this? No. So, so the arm he has around the fraggle is like unusually long. It is because it, the entire arm is fake. Whoa! <laughs> so he's able to control the the fraggle underneath, but it, it's like really well made. Yeah. Actually, you can only notice at slight points where it's ah, oh, this this is a puppet arm. I mostly noticed that there was a Canadian flag, so apparently uh, Matt has really traveled far. Apparently, but also speaking of the whole nationalities, like where are we supposed to be in general? Because I think it's supposed to be the U.S., but. Gobo sounds very Canadian at times. Exactly. So there will be some fraggles sounding very Canadian, some very British, some very American. Like the accents are all over the place. Guess they're all immigrant fraggles. Maybe. But I did wonder about that guy just sitting next to a fraggle. Why didn't he think anything weird about that fraggle thing? So I think we must conclude that either it's just normal for people to be around fraggles 
or fraggles are invisible in this. But at this no, a, a kid interacted with a fraggle previously, so I think that there are just fraggles living, and we just happen to follow a bunch of fraggles that have been living in isolation, hmm. right? Yeah, they must like coexist with the humans. But then, why are the fraggles hiding from Doc and the and Sprocket? I guess maybe they, they're just a community of fraggles that have been uh, been trapped by the by, by a thing getting in front of the hole in the wall, and then they haven't been able to get out for generations. And then the so then the fraggles have just been this small uh, enclave ghetto of fraggles have just been trapped in there and procreated with each other and and forgotten that the real world exists. But out in the world, fraggles are just there. So it's basically some kind of like weird cult dungeon we have going on here yeah i think so mm. well i might make sense hasn't it? a lot of uh, fraggledom makes more sense when you think of it as just a weird cult like it's it's a it's a weird cult but at least they have good work ethics right yeah yeah but we do get a confirmation that they are procreating in this chapter because gobo mentions his mother and father mm. and there seems to have developed a, a closer bond between red and gobo since they kissed a few episodes oh. ago so that might be a teaser for what's what's coming up in the later episodes yeah we may get a 50 shades of fraggle soon actually sp <laughs> speaking of 50 shades of, of fraggle oh yeah should we move on to our Infamous. Yeah, let's get into some Fifty Shades. Fifty Shades. Should I just uh, start going for it? Yes. Yes. Working, 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 working. Wake up in the morning. Get yourself to work. Fraggles never fool around. Fraggles never shirk. Your duties always waiting. Duties must be done. There's ping pong games that must be played and songs that must be sung. Working, 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 working. I like to tell the story of what my work is for. A tale of toil and gathering radishes and more. But don't forget my mighty job, the lonely, tough routine. I dive and crash and swim and splash to keep the water clean. Working, 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 working. When I was just a baby, Papa used to roam. Mama told me, Sonny boy, your work won't be at home. Go to where you're going. Come back when you've been. Get out that door. Explore, explore. And bring back pink ice cream. And you'll be working, 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 working. Ah, oh, give me work that's boring, boring to the core. A job that goes on much too long and then goes on some more. The work I think I'll work at, or else I think I won't, is sort of something that you do unless maybe you don't. Working, 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 working. Wake up in the morning, get yourself to work. Fraggles never fool around, fraggles never shirk. Your duty's always waiting, duty must be done. 
There is ping pong games that must be played and songs that must be sung. Working, 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 working. And some of you may have figured out that this is, in fact, not from Atlas Shrugged. Indeed. If you pay careful attention, you will notice that they say freckles. Otherwise, it's a perfect match for Atlas Shrugged. So here we have a little, a little working song mm-hmm. that might as well pop up, to be honest, in uh, Atlas Shrugged. Yeah, I think we have found the tune to uh, Richard Halley's new concerto. <laughs> That's the link. Mm. So we should we should be able... This is the melody that the guy was whistling back in chapter one. Wow, that's a circle. <laughs> we finally cracked it. But should we uh, should we move straight on to an actual Fifty Shades of Gold? Yeah, and it's uh, it's about to get serious. It is about to get serious indeed. Sh- uh, should I just uh, take it from the top? And uh, yeah, and we can just take turns. Yes. They came to a clearing. It was a small hollow at the bottom of the shaft, made of straight rock hillsides. A stream cut across the grass, and tree branches flowed low to the ground like the curtain of green fluid. The sound of the water stressed the silence. The distant cut of open sky made the place seem more hidden. Far above, on the chest of a hill, one tree caught the first rays of sunlight. <clears throat> they stopped and looked at each other. She knew only when he did it that she had known he would. He seized her. She felt her lips on his mouth, felt her arms grasping him in violent answer, and knew for the first time how much she had wanted him to do it. She felt a moment's rebellion and a hint of fear. He held her, pressing the length of his body against hers with a tense, purposeful insistence, his hand moving over her breasts as if she were learning a proprietor's intimacy with her body, a shocking intimacy that needed no consent from her, no permission. She tried to pull herself away, but she only leaned back against his arms long enough to see his face and his smile, the smile that told her She had given him permission long ago. She thought that she must escape. Instead, it was she who pulled his head down to find his mouth again. She knew that fear was useless, that he would do what he wished, that the decision was his, that he left nothing possible to her except the thing she wanted most, to submit. She had no conscious realization of his purpose. Her vague knowledge of it was wiped out She had no power to believe it clearly. In this moment, to believe it about herself, she knew only that she was afraid. Yet what she felt was as if she were crying out to him, Don't ask me for it. Oh, don't ask me for it. Do it. She braced her feet for an instant to resist, but his mouth was pressed to hers, and they went down to the ground together, never breaking their lips apart. She lay still, as the motionless, then the quivering object of an act which he did simply, unhesitatingly, as of right, the right of the unendurable pleasure it gave to them. He named what it meant to both of them 
in the first words he spoke afterwards. He said, we had to learn it from each other. She looked at his long figure stretched on the grass beside her. He wore black slacks and black shirt. Her eyes stopped on the belt, pulled tight across his slender waistline, and she felt the stab of an emotion that was like a gasp of pride, pride in her ownership of his body. She lay on her back, looking up at the sky, feeling no desire to move or think or know that there was any time beyond this moment. When she came home, when she lay in bed, naked, because her body had become an unfamiliar possession, too precious for the touch of a nightgown, because it gave her the pleasure to feel naked and to feel as if the white sheets of her bed were touched by Francisco's body. Yep. Did we say problematic? We meant it. Wow. So, as some of you may have heard, we decided to do a more somber reading of this chapter because uh, it really called for it. This could not stand as a sexy time uh, romance. And I know canonically in the universe it is, but it is problematic as fuck. Oh, yeah. I uh, really almost felt sick reading it. There's so many, like during this entire chapter, they instrumentalize their lovemaking in... And if you weigh, yeah, the, I mean, people are the surprise. You thought we were still in the Fifty Shades segment. We are in the woke segment. Yes, it's about to get a uh, woke in here. It's about to get a hell of a lot of woke in here. Take it away. I mean, there's just so much in this chapter. At this point, we really need to address how Ayn Rand views women, right? Because mm-hmm. is she a misogynist? She. At least she doesn't have, I would say, the best ideas in mind for her gender. Um, no, I, I mean she uh, she seems to really uh, uh, support the the sort of oppressive gender roles that are in place at this point. She's not, uh, despite having a female protagonist, she is not fighting the good fight, so to speak. No, she basically lets her female protagonist be a vessel for misogyny. Mm. Which makes it even more terrifying, because this isn't said by a man, but she makes a woman say it. Yeah, and we still have all this uh, weird male gaze stuff in that every time that Dagny is described, it's described with sort of a, a sexualization. Yes. Uh, like, like, a, like the camera lingering on, on a woman's body. Because there's a weird mismatch sometimes between sexualizing Dagny and at the same time keep they keep explaining her away as basically asexual yeah at, at times where she's invested in her job and she doesn't really care for men or fun or in any like in any way for the sexual fabric of the world and then all of a sudden she meets this man who has this influence over her <laughs> and she all of a sudden she explores this like sexual space and I mean, Iran can't seem to keep it straight herself because, as I remember from the first chapter, we're not meant to believe that uh, Dagny is particularly beautiful. No. She wasn't described as such initially, but now she's uh, apparently a, a true beauty goddess type. It seems like sometimes Iran will be falling in love with her own character and then forgetting the descriptions that came before it because now it just yeah. fits the narrative for her to 
basically change looks. She's done this with several of the characters. They, they'll just be changing how they're... <laughs> Their appearance yeah. on a whim. But, I mean, Dagny must be an author stand-in, right? Yes. It must be uh, Ayn Rand projecting herself into the story. Yes. It can't be otherwise. No. Uh, because this is basically, like, the clear amalgamation of all her political ideals that she puts into this one character mm. that fights the entire world. So it's it's her against the world, basically. And even though these ideas are, like, outrageous... <laughs> She just runs with them. Um, because writing these ideas like unapologetically outside of the frame of this book would seem absolutely insane. <laughs> yeah. But like wrapping it up in this uh, like so-called narrative <laughs> to put it uh, makes yeah, it generously then legitimate for her to actually express these ideas. Yeah. But then it's all uh, combined with these very uh, outdated and very uh, like problematic uh, uh, conceptions of, uh, of femininity. Mm -hmm. Like um, it's always sort of a surprise when she's able to do something because she's a woman. How so? Can you elaborate? I mean, I, I have a few quotes here. She walked cutting across a room with a masculine straight line abruptness but she had a peculiar grace of motion that was swift, tense, and utterly challengingly feminine. So it's, it's sort of odd that even though she's, uh, she's abrupt and, uh, and decisive, she's also almost feminine. Yeah, it, it, seems, it seems to display that the whole, I, the whole notion of actually being a rounded and full character is inherently male. Yeah. Um, um, here's another one. She wore slacks or cotton summer dresses, but she was never so feminine as when she stood beside him, sagging in his arms, abandoning herself to anything he wished, in open acknowledgement of his power to reduce her to helplessness by the pleasure he had the power to give her. Yeah. So she's never as feminine as when she's just completely powerless and given over to a man. And that's going to be, it's going to be interesting to see throughout the novel how this characterization of Dagny continues because she's presented on the outside. And we talked about this, I think it was in the first or the second episode, that she could actually be a somewhat like vogue feminist voice at some, like at some stages in the novel. She's this very strong woman yeah. Yeah. That, that fights to take command of the company over her basically problematic brother, like when it comes to like business decisions. Strong, independent woman. Strong, independent woman. But then at the same time, she she throws her into these situations where she just presents herself as this powerless creature. Mm. Um, but she does it under the pretense of her still being strong. Yeah. But, but but there she like abandon. I think she like abandons her character in that way. Like she. I mean, I think. This is a world where women are so weak that even the strongest woman is just barely, barely able to do anything by herself. Yeah, I mean, this is the best a woman can be. This is uh, this is the strongest example of womankind, and she's just at the snap of a Frisco Anconia's fingers, just a quivering, blubbering mess. Exactly, and even though she like she works for hours, and and then we can discuss like her work morals and how healthy they are for her but she's mm. she's at least like giving it like 
20,000 percent right she is putting in the work she's putting in the work clearly but at the same time several times in this uh chapter it is mentioned how draconia will just always be better than her oh yeah but that's because he's fantastic because ayn rand clearly is in love with him yes he's basically some, some sort of like superman figure yeah and you shouldn't be in love with him because he's a terrible dude. He's a terrible douchebag. Um, <laughs> For one, he just keeps telling Dagny how she'll understand when she grows up. Yeah. He was only two years older than her. It's not like she's a child exactly. next to him. Um, he's 16 and telling her, 14, oh, I'm worldly and understanding, but someday you'll maybe understand. Oh, fuck you. And then, it, because it's, like, the terrible thing about it is that this power relation has continued all the way from childhood, right? It's all the way from when they were, like, kids. Yeah. She's, she's been oppressed in this power relation that she, she basically she's, puts this in as, like, this childhood romance, but he's always, like, neglected her. And always uh, ordered her around and... Uh Acted like her boss. And she loves this. Yeah. And, and the, the other characters in the, in the story actually questions this and be like, Dagny, this is not normally you. And, but this, this guy apparently gaslighted her all through her childhood, yeah. which is terrible. But, I mean, Eddie Willis, if you remember, Eddie Willis, the, the sad sack guy that's always uh, that's, that's in love with Dagny and just hanging around him, her yes. all the time. Um, he was also there. Also being gaslighted by Danconia. <laughs> but curiously enough, in the chapter, he's mentioned very much in the beginning and then just completely drops out. Like the first 10 pages of the chapter, Eddie Willis is always mentioned alongside the two other characters, but then he's not mentioned again at all. He just disappears. Yeah, she, she'll do this a lot with her support characters where they'll just pop up when it when it's relevant for Dagny to tell them off or something like that and then they'll yeah, just yeah. disappear off into the blue sky. Yeah. Only uh, only as present as necessary. But but this as far as as we've gotten like the novel seems to be it seems to be an excuse for Ayn Rand to basically talk about her political ideals. Yeah, and the way she does this, like every scene is basically a setup for a rand that Dagny can have. She's not called rand for nothing. No, no, it's just but um, she. <laughs> she just has to rant about stuff. Yeah, <laughs> clearly. Um, but it's it's an interesting narrative structure to have, where you will just basically abandon your entire story for the next good rant yeah. about capitalism. Well, I think that's what thousand-page novels are made of. <laughs> it's impossible to write a thousand-page novel without getting into a bit of ranting and unnecessary nature description. And she does it from the very beginning. Like she's oh, yeah. unapologetic about right it. Right off the bat. Whereas it, this might as well and be a political manifesto, which I begin to understand more and more why it's perceived as to, like it's used as a political manifesto for certain political types. Yeah, right? yeah. It's, it's the slightest camouflage the slightest veneer of a story exactly but i mean just to uh, finish off this frisco guy i have mm -hmm. two uh, more things i'd like to point out here one is just a little quote that again underlines how much of a feminist icon he is i wish i could tell you what a relief it is to see a face that's intelligent though a woman's wow the intelligent despite being a woman yep again we have this uh 
weird view of women from Rand, mm. where it's an extraordinary thing that Daphne is intelligent, although she's a woman. And of course, Frisco was also just a, an abusive douchebag, physically as well. Yes. Because as a teen, Daphne suggests that she should be, try to become popular among the other girls at school, and Frisco slaps her. Oh, yes. Fuck, I and, forgot this. quote, she felt pleasure from the dull, hot pain in her cheek and from the taste of blood. She felt pleasure in what she suddenly grasped about him, about herself, and about his motive. Yeah. Yep. This, this re- reminded me very much of a classic Phil Spector-produced hit song <laughs> called He Hit Me and It Felt Like a Kiss. Is that actually a song? That's a hit. That's a, not just a song, a hit from the 60s. Like, I knew that guy was a douchebag, but come on. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it figures that, uh, that, uh, that Frisco sounds like Phil Spector because Phil Spector shot his girlfriend and is, and is in prison. But did, so, in other words, Frisco would really like Phil Spector. Yeah, they were two kindred spirits. Um, yes. Did we get to the whole point when we read uh, out the... Uh, chapter aloud this uh, this week about how they're basically having sex in order for them to get over it get over it because there's a there's a quote in the book here where after they had sex Draconian will be saying that's good we did that now we know how that feels now we now we got that over with now we know how to do do that basically like instrument the instrumentalization of their whole relation yeah, yeah it, it's uh it's, it's- Purely sort of a, an a instrument for pleasure. Yep. Because as we are repeatedly told, Dagny does not really know how to feel emotions. At least she's told that and she has internalized that. At the same time, she's this is a weird contrast because she's always described as being joyful. Yeah. Which does not come across except when people say that she's joyful. Because then I want to put into question of how much of Daphne's character is herself and how much is this gaslighted version of her. Because she's basically always like Draconian delight. Like she, she tries to do everything by his book. Yeah, so the question is... Has she just been groomed from the beginning by him? It seems so. Is this really just a story of abuse and not of a strong, independent woman? As, as, far, as far as this chapter goes, it, it would highlight it, actually. It's, it's uh, did we say problematic? Yeah, but that's an interesting lens to like, view the rest of the story and like, mm. how much of Daphne's character are actually her and how much is basically a veil put over her head. Yeah, it's... Worth to remember. Uh, just a side note: when I tried, when I, I had to figure out how old they were to uh, to determine the age gap, and I just tried to to Google it because I didn't want to scroll around the hundred pages, uh-huh. and I f- found it on Conservapedia. Ooh, <laughs> and that listed Dagny's birth year as nineteen eighty six. and that can't be right, can it? <laughs> Is this in present time? <laughs> Then it becomes even more problem. To be honest, this is set in, in, in it's about right about now. I think twenty probably. What? Because it would it would slightly make sense for this like view on women women to be prevalent in like the thirties. It is written. I mean, it is written in the fifties, and 
So it makes sense for that age, but not if mm-hmm. it's set in the fucking 2000s. And even for the 50s, some of these ideas are like really backwards, right? But Oh yeah, it's old-fashioned. Because in my mind, this will be placed in about the same time period as like the Great Gatsby's or during like the verge of the Great Depression, that whole era. Mm. Like that's the, that's the mindset I'm in when I'm reading this. Yeah, definitely, yeah. But I mean, and Rand is just writing with a sledgehammer, so you don't, it's, mileage may vary. <laughs> why, why are we doing this to ourselves again? I don't know. One thing that struck me was that every important event in this chapter happened at the Wayne Falkland Hotel. And it, it's, it's just, it felt like Ayn Rand was a film director who had to save money on locations. So she just reused the same one, not knowing that a novel, you could just go anywhere. You don't have to go back to the same location for everything. Maybe she's a method actor, so she's actually going to these places that she's writing about. Oh, wouldn't surprise me at all. Because she seems to be like so bad at hiding herself in the novel that it would make sense for her in order to write this novel she would actually have to visit the places to actually just write about her experiences there maybe it's like a, a jack carrick on the road sort of thing <laughs> where she's just describing what happened to her a few years ago just it, changing the names it wouldn't actually surprise me <laughs> it, it seems the most reasonable explanation for this but i think like going through this novel in this very meta theoretical way makes it an interesting read mm. but reading this just as face value like how can someone go through this book and not see all the logical f- fallacies expressed in it like how can you actually think that the ideas expressed in this book are like valid i don't know but then again there are people believing all sorts of things so i guess it's a case of wanting to believe it because you're already doing it perhaps so uh, it's sort of a moral justification to yourself so you can sleep at night when you're stealing poor people's money that might be the case because as we maybe talked about in the introduction episode around that there's actually something called the Ayn Rand Institute because there will be Mm. a lot of people this book has a huge following yes Um, around Randians I think they're called but yeah Randy people. Randy people. Okay. Um, And both like here in Denmark, where we are situated, but also like across the world, especially. Yeah. And it's fascinating to read about how these people like unapologetically embraces this novel as the like greatest piece of artwork and the greatest expression of their whole like moral ideas. It is the libertarian Bible. Yes. Like nothing short of it. And... The more I read about this book, the more scary it becomes how people take it as face value. Yeah. I mean, it's like when, when Scientology is a religion built up around the writings of a really hacky sci-fi writer. Yep. Who's just pounding out short stories and first drafts and sending them in. But, <laughs> but I think you basically laid out the whole idea for the next podcast project. Is it, uh, what's it called? Ilrun Hobbit. Uh, battlefield earth yeah 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 i can do something there well should we get on to the next section and hand out some awards yes let's do it let's uh, let's steal some awards let's go to the most fracklian sentence what what have you got i don't really have a lot here i was hoping you had something the most fracklian sentence i mean i have two that are not great but hmm. i guess there's uh 
if we want to get into that now, but there's a wonderful sentence about being gay at a ball. Yes. I was just saving that for best sentence okay. <laughs> because I really liked it. But, um, should I give you mine? Yes. I don't give a damn for a moth-eaten turret and 10th hand unicorns. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This word salad sounds as much as, as rant as fraggle, I think. Yes. And by the way, a turret is a gun tower, so I really don't know what a moth-eaten gun tower is supposed to mean. Mm, nope. Nope, nope. I can't even begin to guess that. But uh, Frisco said it, so uh, I'm sure Dagny just accepted it. Oh, yes, yes, yes. She accepted it and got like weirdly moist about it. Yeah. And the other one is, um, isn't it wonderful that our bodies can give us so much pleasure? Because the, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the fraggles are a, a pleasuring bunch, I'm sure. Yes. Uh, I'm not sure the fraggles would express it that way, but... Uh no. Or maybe the the Fraggle universe is just a sex cult. It, that could also very well yeah. be the case. Just, uh, just camera right as an orgy all the time. <laughs> no, that that's what you see when they're jumping in the pools all the time. They're basically fucking. Oh, yeah. They do it underwater. Yeah. No, no they clean the water. Yeah. <laughs> clean in heavy quotes. Cleanse it. <laughs> so... I think this should just go to the Marth Eden turrets and tenth hand unicorns because let's uh, let's give it to that, but not not a strong not a strong running this, oh, uh, this time around. It's by default. From Fraggle Rock, Randian on the other hand. Oh, oh my! We already got the whole song mm-hmm. about just working, working, working. <laughs> That's basically a whole fra- uh, ra- uh, like Randian song. So yeah, okay. I, I think. I think it's a direct quote from Atlas Shrugged. Working, 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 working. <laughs> yes. That's chapter eight, I think. Yep. Uh, other ones. I break your fall and you break my neck. Uh-huh, uh-huh. From Red. And uh, work, is an en- work is an enriching experience. Work is an enriching experience. Yes, from Red as well. Uh-huh. So, Gobo says... Life's not all fun and games. Mm. He also says, I don't pal around with wishy-washy fraggles. <laughs> and then as a special uh, nomination, I would like to nominate the least Randian uh-huh. from Gobo as well. And that means my job is done for another day. <laughs> because a good Randian's job is never done. No. You can always work in like 20 or 40 hours more a week. Yeah. When your job is done for the day, you go to your next job which is night manager at a railroad station out in nowhere. And then we both with that, just go to some mines and work a bit more. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just not too much, not too much, just until you own the mine. Exactly. Within like four years. It should be pretty easy. Yeah. I think the whole wishy-washy part was kind of fun. Yeah. I don't pal around with wishy-washy freckles. Uh, because that could easily be something Dagny said, like wishy-washy people. Yeah, and freckles kind of sound like uh, moochers and looters and all that weird yes. rant terminology. Fraggles are just a bunch of moochers. So that's it for the Randian sentence. The best character this time around. Yeah. Well, in Atlas Shrugged, again, slim pickings because there weren't that many characters in this uh, chapter and I do not want to give any award to Fresco because he uh, he's an abusive Dude. He's an abusive little bitch, but... So, I would like to nominate Dagny's mother. 
she's always reflecting on events and characteristics of people all the way through and we don't get much detail about her but she's she always seems fairly insightful she's weirdly enough the voice of reason yeah and she said the whole thing with uh, it's not a romance it's an international industrial cartel of some kind so from the words of Daphne's mother we get a summation of the entire book Yes, I think for that, she should at least win best character this time around. That is a very yeah. insightful little nugget. Running unopposed and winning big Dagny's mother. Wonderful. For not being either a sexist or, yeah. <laughs> or brainwashed. For not raping anyone. Yes. That's <laughs> an award. Congratulations. <laughs> Dear God. Jeez. Okay, Fraggle Rock. Yep. I mean, I feel bad for Sprocket, um, the dog, because he's having he's having a hard go of it. Yeah. I so I nominate him, and then I nominate Mookie, who turns out to be a badass. Yes, like, I think she should win for just the whole fucking punching a guy in the face. Yeah, and I would, I mean, that is uh, a thing that surprised me. And again, now we're talking gender and all that stuff, right? Mm -hmm. She is all that Red pretends to be, right? Because Red, as we saw in an earlier episode, she was acting all tough and fierce, and I can do anything, uh -huh. but as soon as she faced danger, she just withered and crumbled and had to let a man do the job for her. Mm -hmm. But Mookie is all uh, new age, uh, hippie, uh, oh, everything's wonderful, I just pick turnips, I just pick radishes. Yes. And then she just goes out and to the most dangerous place and just punches a giant monster in the face. <laughs> yes. It's not even faced a little bit. Yeah, she's just looking him directly in the eyes, taking this fucking giant radish, and they're just punching him straight in the nose. She just, she just seems offended that it's that it's scaring her friend. Yes, he's stone cold. And also, this like flabbergasts the poor gorg. Yeah, she hit me. Of course, it does. <laughs> it's. I mean, <laughs> She's the most badass uh, female character we've had in any of this so far. Actually, yes. And that, that's a bit of sexist, I think, because we have five episodes in. Uh -huh. Four Fraggles have had their spotlight episode. Mm -hmm. This should belong to Mookie, but instead we get another Wembley episode. When will Mookie get her turn? I, I'm looking forward for Mookie to get her turn. But if we actually yes, justice for Mookie. look about, uh, go a bit back to the woke uh, segment, like would Mookie this time around actually pass the Bechdel test? I don't think it does. I don't think the episode does. Because doesn't she talk about her work? Yeah, but not to Red, right? Oh, yeah, it has to be two female characters talking. Backdale talk. test, just to uh, remind you people out there, two female characters with names have a conversation about something other than a man. No, I think they only have a conversation about Wembley. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think Red and Mookie even talk. No, that might be the case. Ugh. But, uh, but fr at least Fraggle Rock has passed in the past. Yes, <laughs> Atlas Shrug doesn't seem to be passing anytime soon. Uh, no, it seems to be we get wearing away from it. Almost close, because I think Dagny talks a little bit with her mother, but I think it's just about meeting boys at the ball, and we don't learn Dagny's mother's name anyway. So, Yep, so not actually even close to passing the Bechdel test. No, fail. But we got 900 pages. Sooner or later, it's going to happen by accident. It, it's going to have to pass it at some point. 
But uh, who should win the best Fraggle character? Oh, it's 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 going to be a clear it's, clear win here, Mookie. Yeah, it's Mookie. So the best phrase, yeah, the last award, the last one. Pretending that you're an iron woman with a mind of her own, James says to Dagny. An mm. iron woman with a mind of her own. And pretending. Yeah, yeah, that's the key word. <laughs> yep. Because it sounds so strong, but then you just put that pretending and, oh. And he has to deflate the sentence, right? Yeah. And this is James Taggart, the moral center of the story. So, you know, it's bad when he says something like that. Yep. And uh, Frisco says this. When I die, I hope to go to heaven, whatever the hell that is. <laughs> and I want to be able to afford the price of admission. That is also a Randian-ass sentence. Yeah, because as it says afterwards, the greatest virtue of all, that I was a man who made money. Fuck, that is, that uh, is also a sentence that could wrap up the entire book. Yeah. The greatest virtue of all is that I was a man who made money. Yeah, emphasis on man. <laughs> Yes, yes, because how dare a woman make money? And of course, it's not a romance. It's an intellectual industrial cartel of some kind. Yes. Deserves another round on the spotlight. And then we have two that they wouldn't sound like anything back when this was written, but because language changes, they have become come really fun out of context. Mm -hmm. um, the first is... One is simply supposed to be gay. That's a statement. One is simply supposed to be gay. And, uh, I mean, I, I, it, sure, why not? Yeah, 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 I can get behind that sentence. Sounds like a, sounds like a trash heap advice. Yeah, that would be a wonderful trash heap advice. Yeah. Or it could be a career path to one of the fraggles. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, yes. Uh, Wembley could be a good gay. He could be a good gay. Like a twink or something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, More like a twonk. I'm not twonk. sure. Maybe. Twink twonk. Yeah. Um, I don't know the terminology. <laughs> the gay the terminology here. Vocab. So, so basically, if we can get into that, a twonk is basically a has-been twink. So, oh. Yeah. Well, I don't think Wembley is a has-been. Uh, he's a yet-to-be. He's, he's soon-to-be. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and similarly, we have Dagny about Frisco. Mm -hmm. She heard him laughing. It was the gayest sound in the world. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and if there's one thing we associate with Mr. Hard Ass Superman Rapey yeah. uh, work as a 12-year-old, it's gayness. Maybe that that is going to be a whole plot twist like halfway in, inside the book. The reason he treated everyone like this was because he had a deep hidden secret. Yeah, I mean, following up on that, yes? the last one from Atlas Shrugged, yet again, Frisco... He moaned, oh, God, it's so hard. Yes. Oh. I, think, I think that one's too easy. And I think yeah. the gay ones are quite fun, again, because of language changes. But in, yeah, but they're not so substantial. No, in and of themselves, they're not that fun. I think more the whole, like, buying your way into heaven. I love that. That's just unapologetically dumb. Yeah, maybe that should win. On the other hand, the whole industrial cartel thing oh yeah it's just so perfect but then again we have we have spotlighted it a bit and we so, already gave an award to Dagny's mother so I think we with that sentence have our title of the episode though not a romance but an industrial cartel of some kind that, I think that's a wonderful episode title and it's very saying and winner of best atlas 
phrase is, when I die, I hope to go to heaven, whatever the hell that is, and I want to be able to afford the price of admission. Yes, 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 yes. And finally, Fraggle, best sentence. Two nominees. Uh-huh, go for it. I don't know the password is the password from Gork King Schimmelfini, who is the boss of password security. He will never get hacked. Oh, yeah, that whole conversation the two of them has. Isn't that basically sold? And this is for the Danes out here. It's a it's a weird deep dive. But isn't that whole conversation basically uh, the Danish comedy group Linie 3 sketch? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Did they steal this sketch from Fraggle Rock? I mean, why not? It seems like they're intellectual uh, sort of uh, level. Because I think the, the, this sketch came before them and it's very much... A Linnitzai sketch. Mm. It's just, it's just, I'm just throwing it out there for the people in the know. I'm sure it is. And another one, Trash Heap says, or is uh, addressed, her omniscient rubbishness. And that is how I would like to be addressed in the future. Thank you very much. <laughs> omniscient rubbishness. Yes. Ah, oh, the Trash Heap is great. Like, she deserves an award. Oh, she does. Maybe we should just have a trash heap one. The trash heap of the episode goes to the trash heap. Yes. <laughs> You've earned it. So it has to go to someone who's like weirdly insightful without saying anything at all. Yeah, I mean, I guess that could be a good award for just giving to either of the two the chaps of the episode. Mm-hmm. Just whoever says the most insightful sweet nothingness. Yes, I, I think we could go with like a best trashy award. I would be up for that doing it going forward. Yeah, let's uh, keep an eye out for that. Yes. And maybe this time give it to one who's simply supposed to be gay. Yes. That's an inaugural <laughs> best trash <laughs> advice. That could, that could be a really good trashy advice. Most trashy advice. Yes. Because the trashy is basically a drag queen anyway, so. Yeah. The gayest sound in the world. Yep. Her omniscient rubbishness. Preach. And on that note, it's not a romance, it's an international industrial cartel of some kind, and we are out. This podcast is produced by Monegale Media, a small and independent Danish media collective. If you want to learn more about this podcast and our other projects, visit our website at maanegal.dk. That is Monegale with two A's up front, .dk. At the moment, most of our stuff is in Danish, but we are looking to expand our selection in English in the future. So, you know, stay tuned. To the madness. <laughs>